Great. Thanks, uh, Jen and Ellie. If you've closed your Bibles, do open up again to Matthew chapter 3, page 967, as we come to look at that. I'll pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, thank you uh, that you are a speaking God, that you speak to us through your word. And we pray that as we come to look at it this morning, you would be at work in our hearts and minds, helping us to know you better and uh, see better how to respond to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, <clears throat> I have absolutely no idea if it's true, but I read the other day that the first humans ventured out of Africa about 120,000 years ago. And I guess that if that is true, then that's a pretty big turning point in human history, isn't it? And uh, I guess there have been others as well. The, uh, the invention of agriculture, the discovery of electricity, the Industrial Revolution, uh, the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand, more recently, the, the invention of Netflix. And I, I wonder what you would consider uh, to be the great turning points in human history. Well, I want to suggest this morning that we see one of the greatest turning points in human history uh, right here in Matthew chapter 3. And if we have to get really specific about it, I think the, the, the pivot point is between verses 12 and 13. And in fact, uh, just like many of the other major turning points in human history, it has a major impact on our lives today. More about that shortly. Do, do stay tuned for that. But we've got 12 whole verses to get through uh, before we get to it. So I think in this passage, we see both a very old message and a wonderful new hope. But first, a very old message. We've been looking at Matthew's gospel for, for about a month now. In the lead up to Christmas and since Christmas, we've looked at chapter 1 and chapter 2, uh, Jesus' genealogy and birth and at the events surrounding his birth and those following his birth, uh, the flight to Egypt and the return to Nazareth. You might say that we're a goodly way into the New Testament now. We're, we're a month in. It feels like we're, we're, we've, we're really stuck into it. But I think there's another sense in which you could argue that the Old Testament really doesn't end until here. You could argue that John the Baptist is really the last prophet of the Old Testament. He certainly looks like an Old Testament prophet uh, in the way that he's described in Matthew chapter 3. Look at verse 4. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a, belt around, a leather belt around his waist. Matthew's original hearers would have, would have uh, been, been right on track with Matthew. They would have been like, oh yes, Matthew, we're talking about a prophet they would have uh, had in mind the Old Testament prophet Elijah, the first of the great Old Testament prophets. In 2 Kings uh, chapter 1 and verse 8, it describes Elijah as having had a garment of hair and a leather belt around his waist, just like John the Baptist did. Matthew's hearers would have gone straight to that. Like the Old Testament prophets, uh, John spoke of the coming Messiah, of God's promised rescuing king. And the initial message that he preaches, his initial plea is the same as theirs was. His is not a new message with the New Testament, but a very old message. Have a look back uh, to verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, repent. Repent. It's a word that means not just to admit that we've done the wrong thing and to be sorry for that, uh, but, but to actively turn away uh, from that, turn away from that way of living, turn back to God, returning to him. And it's a message that has echoed throughout 
the Old Testament over and over and over again. God has always been calling his people back to him. Through the prophet Hosea in the time of Israel's kings, in Hosea chapter 14, verse 1, return Israel to the Lord your God. Your sins have been your downfall. In the lead up to the exile to Babylon through Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 32, for I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent and live. After God's people had returned from the exile, uh, when they returned to live in Israel, through, through Malachi, in Malachi chapter 3, verse 7, ever since the time of your ancestors, ancestors you have turned away from me, decree, uh, from my decrees, and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. That word return is actually the exact same word uh, that's translated as repent in the Old Testament. God says to his people, repent, turn around, turn from your, your ways of living and turn back to me. After Malachi, we have no word recorded from God for almost 400 years. But when John the Baptist takes up the mantle of prophet, the message hasn't changed. It's exactly the, state, the same. Repent. I don't know what you think of uh, when you think of the word uh, repent. Perhaps it has uh, some quite negative connotations for you. Perhaps you imagine a minister, probably, probably in robes, I guess, and maybe kind of up in the pulpit, uh, shaking his finger at people and, and shouting at them to, to repent. But if that's the case, then we've got the wrong idea. Repent is not the command of a, of a churlish, demanding deity, but the invitation of a loving father. I once heard the story of a girl who longed to leave her, her poor village in Brazil. She was discontent with her, her family's humble way of life and wanted to experience the big city, uh, wanted to experience the world. So one morning, taking little more than the clothes on her back, she ran away. And her, her broken-hearted mother, knowing what would likely become of her daughter uh, living on the streets, set out to try and find her spending uh, a lot of what, what little money she had on photographs before she left. She sat in a photograph booth and closed the curtain and spent all she could on pictures of herself. So with these pictures in her purse, uh, she boarded the bus uh, to Rio. She knew her daughter didn't have any way of supporting herself, but also knew that she was too stubborn uh, to give up, and she worried that that combination would lead to her uh, earning a living in ways that she would have previously thought of as unthinkable. With those fears in the forefront of her mind, uh, she began to search. Uh, she looked everywhere, visiting bars and hotels and nightclubs. She went to all of them, and everywhere she went, uh, she left one of these photographs of herself, uh, taped to a bathroom mirror or pinned to a hotel pinboard or stuck in the corner of a phone booth uh, window. And on the back of each one, she wrote a message. But eventually, she ran out of money, and she ran out of photographs and was forced to return uh, to her village, weeping uh, on the long journey home. And it was some months later that her daughter uh, descended the stairs of yet another cheap hotel. Her face was drawn and tired. Uh, her eyes had none of their previous youthful uh, spark. Instead, they were full of fear and pain. Her dream had become a nightmare. And thousands of times, uh, she'd longed to return to her village and to her family. But they felt too far away in too many ways. But as she reached the bottom of those stairs, she was um, shocked to see a small photo of her mother uh, stuck to the notice board in the lobby of this hotel. 
So, so her eyes uh, burned and her, her throat uh, tightened as she crossed the, the lobby to, to pick up this photo. And turning it over, she saw a message on the back and it said, whatever you have done, whatever you have become, it doesn't matter. Please come home. Now, that message wasn't a burdensome command, was it? Far from being a burdensome command, it was a loving invitation. Despite everything, return home. And that was the message that God had given to his people for thousands of years. Can you imagine that kind of love and patience? Despite everything I've done for you, you've turned away from me again and again. You've turned down paths that lead to death. But repent, turn around, uh, come back to me, and I will welcome you home. That was his message over and over again for thousands of years. It was a very old message, but it was still the message when it came to John preaching in the desert of Judea. And it continued to be the message as well. In chapter 4 of Matthew, the next chapter when Jesus starts his own preaching ministry, the very first word he says uh, that we hear him preach Repent. And at the end, in Mark's gospel, in chapter 6, Jesus sends out his 12 disciples on a bit of a preaching tour. And we read in verse 12, so they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. At the end of Luke's gospel, at the very end, in chapter 24 and verse 47, Jesus explains that after his death and resurrection and ascension, repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. This message of John's might have been a very old message, but it didn't stop it from being relevant. It's for all time and for all nations. It's for us today as well. God says to us, whatever you've done, whatever you've become, please come home. All we need to do in response to such a loving invitation is to accept it, to to act as we've been invited to act, to repent, to turn away from anything in our lives that doesn't glorify God and come back to him. What it is uh, that we need to turn away from uh, will be different for each of us. Perhaps uh, we're depending on ungodly things uh, for satisfaction. Maybe we have uh, developed sinful mindsets in some of our relationships. Perhaps we spend so much time glued to screens that we have no time for God. Whatever it is, we need to identify it because we can't repent from something without knowing what it is. It might be something more subtle uh, than those things, though. Uh, it might be that, in some sense, we, we think we've, we're earning a right relationship with God through our actions, or that we're doing him a favor uh, by following him. In a sense, I think that was the case with some of the people that came out to John in the desert. Have a look down at verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were those who should have best known how to live God's way. And in fact, in a sense, they turned uh, following God's laws into a kind of an art form. They became so obsessed with keeping the finer details of God's law, and in fact, uh, adding some of their own bits, that they lost sight of the big picture. 
They were so busy pedantically following rules that many of them forgot to, to love people or to lead them as they should have, as was their job. They seemed to think that they could earn a right relationship with God by keeping rules. They thought that being descendants of Abraham guaranteed them inclusion amongst God's people. But John says, no, God can raise up true descendants of Abraham from wherever he chooses. You need to repent of your entitled rule-keeping approach, accept God's loving invitation, and repent, turning back to him. And perhaps, uh, similarly, we need to repent of an attitude of trying to earn our own right standing before God. Perhaps even without noticing, we've slipped into a mindset of uh, volunteering and serving and coming to church and reading our Bibles and praying in such a way that we think that that will earn us a right relationship with God, as if, as if that would, would uh, make us into children of God. If that's the case, we need to repent of that too. Of course, all of those things are great things uh, to do, but we need to do them in response to having been received back by God not in any way to earn it. And it's wonderful that we can turn back to him. Because like with that Brazilian girl, the alternative uh, to turning back to him doesn't bear thinking about. You might have noticed the rather startling uh, phrase John uses in in verse 7, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? The alternative to repentance isn't just a different but equally valid route. When John starts speaking of the coming Messiah, he certainly speaks of him as one who will come to save, but also as one who will come to judge. Look down at verse 12. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. It's a picture language, but it speaks of an incredibly serious reality. It's wonderful that God hasn't given up Uh, given up on delivering this very old message, this loving invitation, because we are in desperate need of being allowed to turn back to him. Now, perhaps you're thinking at this point, great, uh, so we have this, this this wonderful message, this loving invitation to repent and turn back to God. But the reason God had to keep delivering this message over and over again for thousands of years uh, throughout the Old Testament was that the people were really rubbish at following the instruction, at accepting the invitation. What chance do we have? Uh, Why should we expect to do any better or be any different? It's a fair question, but wonderfully in this passage, we don't just have uh, this very old message. We also have a wonderful new hope. That's our second point. We've seen a very old message, now a wonderful new hope. John the Baptist was uh, no ordinary prophet. He was a prophesied uh, prophet. Other prophets had said he would come. Verse 3, this is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. And uh, John's message didn't end at the word uh, repent. It went beyond that in verse 2, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. God's kingdom was near. His rule was at hand. It wasn't like in the Old Testament when God's uh, promised rescuer, uh, who the prophets spoke about, was, was a reality, was real, but was at some kind of unspecified distant time. I saw uh, the other day, um, uh, just, just earlier this week, a meme about the fact that now we're into January, Christmas is only 356 days away. Seems like quite a long time uh, to wait for me. This is not like that. 
No, the presents, they're, they're wrapped and under the tree already. The kingdom of heaven is at hand because God's promised rescuer was on the doorstep of history. I promised that we'd get to one of the biggest turning points in human history, and here it is. He's been promised for thousands of years, and look down at verse 13, then Jesus came. Then Jesus came. And I mean, we, we have seen Jesus previously in Matthew's gospel, I know, um, we, we, but this is the first time that we see him as an adult. This is the first time when he is, is, uh, is, is the one acting. This is the beginning of his ministry. And it's his arrival that means we have a wonderful new hope of being equipped to respond to that very old message. We see the reason for that in verse 11. John says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry, who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John is the prophesied prophet, uh, the final uh, prophet of the Old Testament, if you like, but despite how great he is, Jesus is greater. He speaks of the one who would come after him, that's Jesus, as being so, so much greater than him, so much more powerful than him, that he is not even worthy to carry his sandals. In those days, uh, dealing with someone's sandals was the job of a slave, and John didn't even see himself fit to do that for Jesus. Such is his greatness. It's because while John may have been a great prophet, Jesus wasn't a prophet at all. He was in a completely different league. He wasn't one of God's messengers, but rather God himself, bringing his kingdom near in the person of his son. And we can answer his call to us because of what Jesus has done for us and because of who he gives us. I don't know if you made any New Year's resolutions uh, last week. I wonder if you did, um, whether, whether you've managed to keep them this far or whether they've already fallen by the wayside. Failing to keep New Year's resolutions seems to be a bit of a perennial problem. I saw an article earlier in the week entitled, Why We Break New Year's Resolutions and Five, five Tips to Stick By Them. While the resolution, uh, the, the resolution to repent uh, shouldn't be just a New Year's resolution, uh, but one that we make every single day. Saying sorry for the wrong things in our lives and turning back to God should be a daily exercise. And one tip for, for keeping that resolution is to not do it alone. We're always more likely to keep up with something if we're doing it with someone else, aren't we? Uh, for, for a period of a number of months, quite some years ago, I went, I went rock climbing every week with a friend of mine. I really enjoyed it. Uh, it was great fun. Uh, but then uh, she went back to Australia. And in the seven or eight years since then, I have been rock climbing zero times. It's much easier to do something if you're doing it with another person, isn't it? And it's the same with, the res with this resolution to live a life of repentance. If we try and do it alone, we're just not going to succeed. But the wonderful new hope we have is that we don't have to do it alone anymore. Have a look down at verse 11. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry, who will baptize you with the Spirit. So far in Matthew, we've seen uh, Jesus as the son of Abraham and David, uh, as Emmanuel, God with us, as the King of Kings, even as a refugee. Now we see that he is also the Spirit baptizer. It is through him that all God's people would receive the Spirit. It's what God had, uh, had planned all along, and he had promised to do it. 
uh, way back in, in Joel chapter 2, God promises through Joel that a day would come when he would pour out his spirit on all people. And when John was preaching in the desert of Judea, that day was close at hand. The kingdom of heaven was near. The spirit baptizer was about to arrive. Verse 13, then Jesus came. And in verses 13 to 17, uh, right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, we start to get hints of how it is that he's going to do that. Have a look down with me at, uh, at, from verse 13. Then Jesus came to Galilee, to the Jordan, to be baptized by John. But John tried to deny him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. I get the sense that, that John was a little bit embarrassed about Jesus coming to him for baptism. What? You don't need to be baptized. I'm the one who should be baptized by you. And in a sense, he was right. Jesus didn't for himself need to, need to have the baptism that John was offering. Remember that it was a baptism with water for repentance. And of all people in history, Jesus was the only one who didn't need to do that, the only one who didn't need to repent. He was perfect. He had nothing to turn away from because he'd never turned away from God in the first place. But there was another sense in which, for our sakes, he did need to be baptized. He said they needed to do it to fulfill all righteousness. This was part of God's plan, Jesus' identification with us, if you like. Uh, the prophet Isaiah prophesied about him that he would be numbered with transgressors. He wasn't a transgressor himself, but in baptism, he stood in our place. He identified with us, and eventually, he would take our place on the cross when he would die to take the punishment that we deserved for our sins. After Jesus was baptized, uh, God, we see God's confirmation of him. Heaven opens, and the Spirit descends on him, and God says, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. He says, this is the one, the one I've been promising all along. He's here, the greatest uh, turning point in human history, Jesus' life and death and resurrection. And he has the Spirit. The Spirit descended on him like a dove. I have absolutely no idea what that looked like, but I, I imagine it was pretty wonderful. And Jesus doesn't keep the Spirit to himself. He gives it to his followers. He is the Spirit baptizer. And since the day of Pentecost, after Jesus' death and resurrection, every single follower of Jesus has the Spirit of God living in them. And that's why we have this wonderful hope of being able to accept that very old message of repentance, because we are not doing it alone. We can turn back to God because he's living in us by his spirit. What better person to help us to turn back to God than God himself? Jesus has done all that needs to be done for us to be able to come back to God by dying in our place so that we could be counted sinless before him when we turn back to him. And he gives us everything that we need uh, to equip us to follow that command as well by giving us his spirit to live in us, empowering us and equipping us. So repentance shouldn't be just a New Year's resolution, but a daily resolution. Each time we hear from God, each time we open his word, it's like that girl discovering that photo afresh. Whatever you've done, whatever you've become, please come home. Let's be resolving to do that.
might be that that's uh, something that you've never done before, uh, that turning to God is something that, that you've not done. There is nothing stopping you from doing that uh, today, if you'd like to. But if you'd like to think more about it, then, then our Alpha course, which Jen uh, gave us a notice about earlier on, would be a fantastic way of, of thinking more about it, of finding out more. Perhaps uh, you know someone who could really do with, with hearing this message, uh, this really old message and the wonderful new hope that we have. Do you think about inviting them along uh, to Alpha starting on the 28th? But uh, for now, let's uh, stand to pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have not given up on calling us to repentance. Thank you that uh, for thousands of years, uh, you have been patiently and graciously and lovingly calling your people to repent. And thank you for the loving invitation that is. Thank you that despite having turned away from your ways, uh, you don't leave us there, but you invite us to turn back to you uh, with the promise that you will welcome us back in. Heavenly Father, please would you um, help us to see clearly uh, what it is in each of our lives that we need to repent from. Help us to see uh, what ways uh, in which, uh, what ways we have, we have turned away from you, what paths we are walking down uh, that are not your paths. Help us to daily be, be repenting of those things. Help us to daily turn back to you. Thank you that we can do that with the full assurance of, of your acceptance as we do so. In Jesus' name, amen.